On the evening of Tuesday, September 11th, 2001, people of our nation and many across the world went to bed with a pit in their stomachs. The Twin Towers of the World Trade Center had fallen in the wake of an unspeakable attack in which commercial jets full of people were flown into the buildings, resulting in their eventual collapse. Most of us who were alive and remember that event, remember exactly where we were when it happened. I was at a radio station pitching New Covenant schools, then a very young school, talking about the glories of classical Christian education. And when I got back to the Jones Memorial Library where our high school was located, I was told that there had been some sort of an attack and one of the buildings had already fallen. We set up a television and watched the burning tower until uh, the second airplane came and the second tower was set ablaze, at which time we turned it off, opened our prayer books and said the great litany. We all went to bed feeling sick and the next morning as the sun rose in New York City, we understood more fully why. As a fresh wave of emergency crews arrived at ground zero that morning, they were not prepared for what they encountered. Heaps of still burning metal, entire square blocks reduced to rubble, and what was most memorable to those who were there that day, the sheer amount of dust clouding their vision, filling their lungs and clinging to their skin and to their clothing for weeks to come. Those who were at Ground Zero had a nickname for that first day following the Tuesday attacks. They called it Ash Wednesday. Across the ancient world, ashes have been a universal sign of death, destruction, or repentance. You may recall that when Abraham entreated God on behalf of wicked Sodom, he prefaced his conversation to the Lord with these words, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. When Tamar was violated by Amnon, she put ashes on her head and tore the robe that all the virgin daughters of the king were given to wear. When Mordecai learned of the plot to exterminate the Jews in the fourth chapter of the book of Esther, he sat down and tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and then ran through the streets crying. And who could forget Job, who, when he was struck with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in ashes. Daniel prayed for his people as an old man in Babylon and turned his face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And it wasn't just the Jews. When Jonah's oracle of destruction reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took his robe off, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. What are we to make of such things? Across cultures and across hundreds of years, men have expressed the disintegration of their lives with ashes, which at the end of the day is about as far as you can reduce 
the body of a human being. Several years ago, my aunt passed away, and my cousins invited me to, to attend the scattering of her ashes. We gathered on Bradenton Beach on the Gulf Coast of Florida at a sea grape tree which had been there for years under which the ashes of her husband had been scattered, a little tree off the parking lot, and we returned her remains to the fine white sand. And I remember never having done such a thing before, being a little surprised at how small the box was and that it contained what was once an entire human being that I had loved. We moderns seem to have moved off the dramatic displays of the ancients. I haven't seen anyone in my whole life in a public or private place sitting in a pile of ashes because they were profoundly undone. About the only place it remains, the last vestige of such practices, is, well, you got it, in the church. If you hadn't noticed, Lent began on Ash Wednesday, and the ritual in which we engaged was intended to invoke all the sense of calamity and brokenness and ultimate disintegration, which is part of the human condition. Remember, O man, that thou art dust, and to dust thou shalt return. And as such, Ash Wednesday sets a somber tone for the season of Lent. And once again, I would remind you that the calendar is leading us in a certain frame of mind, teaching us how to feel, telling us that there are times when we are supposed to reflect upon our frailty and to feel sorrowful about it but not as those who do not have hope. As surely as we are encouraged to take an honest look at our fallenness, our propensity to sin, and our own mortality, the calendar will soon give way to Easter, which is the answer to our great problem. But while we moderns have moved on from public displays with sackcloth and ashes, we tend not to deal with death very well. As a people, we, we spend exorbitant amounts of money in the final years or months of our lives on medical treatments that may extend our lives a little bit. We no longer attend funerals dressed in black, but we hold celebrations of life, as often as not with no casket and no body present. I was doing a funeral as a young man, for whom I don't remember, but I had a few minutes alone in the car with a youngish man, perhaps in his 30s, maybe about my age, who was working with the funeral home. And so I asked him curiously, how in the world did you choose to get into the funeral business? I mean, this is kind of thrust upon me as a minister, but why would you just do it every day? And the young fellow answered and said, well, I went to school and studied grief management. Grief management. I'd never heard that term. I didn't know there was such a thing. Perhaps we've tacitly given the grief managers a little too much influence because they tidily sanitize the funeral moment. They've dropped the word funeral almost entirely, the word funis, which means death or corpse in the medieval Latin, and they've cleaned up the process. 
But facing down the reality of death is a necessary predicate for understanding and appreciating Easter. Forty days of Easter joy is viewed by many as a little over the top, but only if we have failed to number our days and apply our hearts to wisdom. Easter is somewhat diminished, actually, if we avert our eyes from the horror of our own condition. Any serious reflection by people of faith will eventually give rise to some old questions. Where is God? Just a few weeks ago, we sang about joy to the world. The Lord has come. And what about those magi that we celebrated a few weeks ago, who were the harbingers of the conversion of the Gentiles? Where is evidence of the promise of the kingdom with peace that has no end? These questions create very real tensions, and we should not duck them. Our faith either explains them, accounts for them, or our faith is worthless and ought to be abandoned. The two texts before us this morning help us a little bit. Here on this first Sunday in Lent, we are presented with the annual rehearsal of the temptation of our Lord, where for 40 days he was assaulted by the devil. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record the event, with Matthew and Luke getting to it by the end of the fourth chapter of their accounts. Mark compresses his story such that we get the episode in the 12th verse of the first chapter. The former accounts each give us three separate assaults. Mark only records that he was constantly tempted and, in a remarkable detail, notes that Jesus was in the desert with the wild animals. This seemingly insignificant reference to wild animals, along with many others in Mark's narrative, invite us to think about another individual who spent significant amounts of time in the wilderness with wild animals a person who eventually defeated a monstrous enemy and inaugurated a kingdom. That person, of course, was David, who, in the protection of his sheep and in close quarters combat, killed a lion and a bear, each with nothing but a blunt instrument and his bare hands. We're then told by the Old Testament historian that David went on to offer himself as a surrogate fighter who would challenge the Philistine, Goliath, to a proxy fight, the winner of which would be accorded victory for his respective army. And the story of the temptation of Christ read in your hearing this morning is the same story. It's a recapitulation of David and Goliath, the Israelites and the Philistines. It is the story of a new David who, in the wake of his astonishing head-lopping victory over a seemingly invincible foe, began a long journey of persecution by the sitting king Saul, who did more than the Philistines ever did to block and tackle David, the anointed king of Israel, whose messianic son would sit on the throne forever. Not surprisingly, Matthew and Mark both record that Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God, that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Luke puts a finer point on it and locates Jesus in a synagogue in Nazareth where he read from Isaiah 61, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. At which point he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. 
And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he said to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus, like David, would now begin a three-year ascendancy to the throne, but would likewise be opposed in the gospel narrative, chased about from the Galilee to the Negev by those loyal to the new Saul. His life would be characterized by suffering and ultimately by death, so much so that he would be called the man of sorrows. It's a dangerous world out there. Jesus Christ went into the desert driven by the Spirit of God to face our greatest enemy, Satan. Evil is real. Satan is real. And there are real perils to our souls and to the life of the world. We're not reading fairy tales here. We're reading about the Lord Jesus Christ, the new David, the Son of God, who goes to mortal combat for you and for me to overcome the powers of wickedness to which we are all too susceptible and which would reduce us to ash if it were not for our hero. And the last and greatest of these opponents to Christ is not introduced to us in the gospel narrative. In fact, we won't meet him until well after the resurrection, many chapters into the book of the Acts of the Apostles. And not coincidentally, his name, get this, is Saul. This Saul continues the persecution of Christians until he himself is dramatically confronted by the resurrected Christ on the Damascus Road, he is converted and sustains a completely changed life signified by his name change to Paul. It is Paul's second letter to the Corinthians that is our lesson today in which he echoes the gospel pronouncement that the kingdom of God is at hand. He quotes Isaiah 49 and puts it this way, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Paul's declaration is that the kingdom of God has broken in upon the affairs of men. He declares to these Greeks that they are living at the dawn of the kingdom of God, and what Jesus had declared to the Jews at the outset of his ministry, Paul now proclaims to the world. So let's go back for a moment to our David and Goliath story and reflect on the triple stage assault on Jesus, the new David, who fights Satan, for whom Goliath was only an ugly stand-in. What are they? Stones to bread? jumping off high places of the temple, usurping kingdoms. None of these, maybe, well, none of these, none of these strike me as things that you are tempted by. They are not my sin tendencies. All of us have our own sin tendencies. Whole cultures have their sin tendencies. I talk to my students on a routine basis, and I ask them, in the Old Testament, what are the gross sins that we see cataloged for us in the books of Samuel and Judges and the Kings and the Chronicles? And they're all able to name at least a few. Moloch, Asherah, high places, things like that. The gods of the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Parasites, and all of the other ites of the Old Testament. 
But remarkably, when we get to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, none of those things show up. We find no mention of Baal in the Gospels. We find no mention of Moloch. We certainly find no mention of Tammuz from the book of Ezekiel. We find no mention of priests putting the twigs to their nose and facing down eastward to the sun. We find none of those things. They're gone. And that's because sin tendencies change in cultures. They change in individuals. And the sin tendencies that you possess may be very different than the ones that I possess, but certainly the sin tendencies we possess as a country, as a culture, as a society, are very different from perhaps 500 years ago. It is all too easy for us to be carried along in the jet stream of the currents of our culture, unaware that we are moving at high velocity in directions that take us away from God. Greed, lasciviousness. All of these things are too easily distractible for us. The comfort of our lives, our standard of living, the image that everything is instant and everything is perpetual and always young. These are messages that our culture sends to us which we struggle with. We struggle with the addiction of debt, unable to defer gratification for things that we as a people cannot afford. We struggle with the temptations of power, and we send billions of dollars that we do not have to wage war in countries far away from us, justifying American interests. We commit all kinds of sins, the death of the unborn, and we secretly hide it away, sanitize it, and we pretend that it does not damage the men and the women who are the victims of such things. These are all sin tendencies which, which we don't wish to face up to. It's much easier to condemn the sins of others and pretend that Satan and evil are not real in our own lives. I guess if I were hungry enough, I might be tempted to turn stones to bread. I don't think I'd ever be convinced to jump off a rooftop. I, I wouldn't do that. We read this text and we tend to think unconsciously that Jesus is like one of the Incredibles. You know, the family, each of whom has a unique superpower. That's Jesus. He's got a whole cluster of superpowers. These temptations are uniquely designed as solicitations to a unique person, to a God-man, and they all appeal to the very real possibility of Jesus the man misappropriating his divinity. Notice that each one opens with the statement, since you are the Son of God. So no, these temptations are not to be read as an index to your own, they are not temptations like you will face, but they were the very real and seductive overtures to use and abuse the power of deity to, circum to circumvent the divine will of God. Each of these temptations share a common theme, discomfort, danger, and suffering, which could be averted or eliminated by sheer application of the divine will. Hunger from a 40-day fast, turn rocks to bread. It's really no harder than turning water to wine, something that you will do shortly. 
Prove your divinity and your identity as the chosen one of Israel. Jump off the parapet into the people's court and just watch the angels mobilize a soft landing. Everyone will believe. You say you're the king of Israel? Just acknowledge that you and I are ultimately the same. Way back there when there was a rebellion in heaven. You can have the kingdoms of the world if you will just admit that that's true. All of these statements implicitly affirm the same thing, that the kingdom of God can and will come about fully with no suffering, no mess, no fuss. There's a path forward that does not include personal or public pain and suffering. You don't have to bear our iniquity or carry our sorrows. It's all avoidable. Suffering is not part of the path to glorification. But the scriptures, brothers and sisters, do not teach this. They teach that the mysterious cosmos conquering plan of God, that the world would be redeemed by the very suffering of God himself. We see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. The obvious point of the epistle lesson today is that we who follow Christ will in some way participate in that, in the plan of God for the life of the world. When Paul was converted, the old man Ananias was told by God to embrace him. And the justification was that God himself would show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. It's written right up there in the window to my left. This statement does not signify that in being converted, Paul is just going to be miserable, although he spent much of his time in misery. It's a theological statement that suggests that bringing in the kingdom of God to Gentiles and kings and to Israel, will be framed up in a life that mimics that of the life of Christ. The kingdom of God is surely at hand, but the kingdom of God does not advance on the greased rails of a charmed life and lack of hardship. Somehow, the mainspring of advancement of the kingdom of God is through a union with the sufferings of Jesus. And thus it is the Christian's embrace of suffering and hardship and his Christocentric orientation to it that fulfills the claim of the gospel. Thus, in one breath, Paul affirms to the Corinthians that now was the day of salvation, that the Messianic age had finally arrived. But in the next breath, he affirmed exactly how he commended himself as a worthy witness and bearer of the mission of the kingdom. As servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance and afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, and hunger. In the same way, he would say in Colossians that I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Paul talks about three kinds of suffering, and you may experience All of these are some part of them. There seems to be general sufferings that come to us by way of providence. 
afflictions, hardships, calamities, the ordinary arrangements of God's hand in our lives in which life circumstances will close in upon us in ways that are beyond our control. But there are specific sufferings also inflicted upon us by others. For Paul, they included beatings, imprisonments, and riots, and I hope that those don't happen to you. But it's for sure that somewhere along the way, someone is going to injure you, someone's going to harm you, someone's going to hurt your feelings, someone's going to bully you, rob you, or somehow contribute to your detriment. Paul experienced more than his share of these. And finally, there is the specific kind of suffering to which Lent calls us right now, the kind of suffering that is self-inflicted, labors, sleepless nights, and hungers, better, trans- better rendered as taking on trouble, watchings, and fastings. Paul deliberately chose to do hard things, labors, He didn't suffer sleepless nights due to stress. Rather, he would stay up late, give up sleep, prayerfully watching. And then there was his fasting. He was not complaining here of missing a meal. He is referring to his habit of neglecting food in intentional self-denial. It was a way of subduing what was so easily carried about in his own flesh, just like we possess. Parents often ask me what the difference is between my school and others, and I routinely tell them that for many, for many children, especially middle schoolers, school is something that just happens to you. I know that that's what it was for me. You get on the bus, you show up, you sit there for six or seven hours, school happens. I tell them that when students transfer here, the biggest adjustment is not Latin. The biggest adjustment is rather the shock to the system, that they actually have to work and that their teachers hold them accountable to do so. Brothers and sisters, the biggest shock to the system in the Christian faith is that you have to work at it. Christianity doesn't just happen to you. But our culture would tell us that it's easy. Go along with the current. No resistance is necessary. But it's not true. You actually have to engage the difficult things of your life. You have to overcome dishonesty, pride, lust, anger, jealousy, greed. These don't go away any more than fat falls off your body unless you go to the gym. We said it in the great litany this morning, and I was struck by the list of things that we must resist. We pray that the good Lord would deliver us from the crafts and assaults of the devil. We pray that the good Lord would deliver us from blindness of heart, from pride, vainglory, hypocrisy, envy, hatred, malice, and all uncharitableness. I'm sure in this list that there is something that you can find that is in your sin tendency. From all inordinate and sinful affections, and from all the deceits of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And on it goes. These are things that we must actively resist. And these are things to which the church is calling us in this season of Lent. I'll conclude by saying this. Going to the gym in the morning is not the thing. Going to the gym in the evening is not the thing. You may go to the gym and work out, or you may run down the Blackwater Creek Trail, but that's not the thing. You do those so that you control your weight, so that you feel better, so that you manage your blood pressure, whatever it is that you're doing. The exercise is not really an end in itself. Maybe it is for some people. I don't know if 
I've seen people on Facebook, it's a little bit, maybe an end in itself. But we don't exercise or diet as an end in itself. There's always some greater good. Lent is the same way. The church is not calling us to self-denial and self-abnegation just as an end in itself, but that we may put habits in place that fit us and that make us consonant with the glory that is to be ours in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul says to the Philippians, I do these things that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that if by any means possible, I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. Amen.